0: Thank you, good evening! How are we all doing? Good, awesome. So, I love stories. Does anyone know a good storyteller? Growing up, I knew one, and he was an awesome storyteller. He wasn't my uncle, but we called him uncle because, well, I'm Indian and that's what we do. <laughs> and he, he was a, a close family friend he could make up stories on the spot. He would draw us in with an interesting storyline, fascinating characters, and these surprising moments throughout it. And I remember leaning in, anxiously waiting, to hear what's going to happen next, or how the story was going to end. You know, a good story is a few things. It's relatable, there's suspense, tension, hopefully an interesting twist, sometimes a tragedy, and usually some kind of hero. This week's story incorporates a lot of these things. See, Jesus was a master storyteller, and his stories were called parallels, parables. (laughs) A parable serves as a kind of word picture. Para means to lay alongside. So think of it as a story set alongside a truth to draw relatable parallels. Jesus takes that which is common and pairs it with a situation that has a twist, with characters that don't need much development due to their familiarity. His stories are meant to dig deep and draw out strong emotions and cause you to ponder its meaning. Parables are not supposed to be this kind of cultural Rorschach test. This is when a person is shown an image such as this. Does anybody remember the ink blots? So what happens here is that the mind will work really hard to impose meaning on this image, and everyone can and will draw a different meaning on the exact same image. By asking the person to tell you what they see in the ink blot, they're actually telling you more about themselves and how they project meaning onto the world. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever looked at the same picture, the same situation, with a completely different interpretation than someone else? Over the years, people have done this with parables. We've heard so many people use parables to support many different beliefs, ideas, actions that we are supposed to do in society. But the meaning of Jesus' parable isn't supposed to change. We can gain, of course, personal insights, but Jesus had a specific purpose, audience, and goal in mind. And this week's parable is known as the Good Samaritan. We've we've all read this or heard this parable before. We think we know this parable, right? What else could I have to learn about this parable? Even unbelievers know this parable. But what if, for today, let's just take everything that we think we know about this parable and just set it to the side? And what if we looked at this parable today with new eyes, new, fresh, unbiased eyes? and let's just go verse by verse through it and see what does Jesus wanna to say to us? What is he trying to tell us about who he is and who we are? Can we do that together? I have, so there's, at your tables you should have some of the printed, nope, okay, that's okay. Very soon you will have uh, <laughs> printed handouts <laughs> for this parable. If not, really what it's for is for people who like to kind of, it's the whole parable so and it's spaced out so you can take notes for those who like to take notes. If not, you can look up the, in your Bible or on your device. So we'll be looking at Luke 10, 25 to 37. So we'll go th- what we'll do is we'll go through this parable together. Then we'll talk about three things that this parable reveals and then some practical applications for us as Christ followers. Should I wait? No. Okay. Okay. Ready? Now remember, at this time in Jesus's ministry, word has gotten out that Jesus was this man going around making big claims about himself, and people began accusing him of falsely teaching that salvation was not about keeping the law. So this threatened religious people because the law gave them worth and status. They were constantly attacking Jesus for violating the law. But in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus tells them, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was trying to help them understand the intention and the purpose behind the law, God's heart for the law. He was trying to help them understand God's heart. So let's look at Luke 10, 25 to 37 together. Verse 25, and behold a, law, a lawyer. So this was an expert of the law, of Moses and the Jewish law. He stood up to put him to the test. So we see here right off the bat, he's not being genuine because he has this ulterior motive to trap or test Jesus. But this ain't his first rodeo. Everyone has been doing this to Jesus. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, this is Jesus. He already knows his heart, his intentions, his thoughts. This man knows the law well and Jesus knows this and he is gonna use this to his advantage. Jesus knows exactly how to play this. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? He threw it right back at him. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this exact same answer in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12 when he was asked, which is the most important or the greatest commandment? Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And by live he means have eternal life. And this is true. The problem is, this is crazy hard to do. But the lawyer doesn't grasp that what this love actually means or what it looks like. You see, no one can love God perfectly all the time and love others perfectly all the time. But that is what is required. he's arrogant about himself and his abilities. And he pridefully believes he's already doing this. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. And this word justify is the Greek word dikeo, which means to declare righteous. So Jesus knows the lawyer believes he's righteous. He's already righteous. So he knows he has nothing really he wants to learn from Jesus. He asked Jesus, so, and who is my neighbor? He's still trying to trap Jesus. Now, if you recall on day two of our study, we looked at Luke 6. Just a few chapters before this encounter, Jesus was talking about loving our enemies. And we know from our study that Samaritans were looked at as their enemy. And Alice did a great job of describing the history and how the animosity was fierce. Calling someone a Samaritan was quite the slur at the time. In John 8, they even called Jesus a Samaritan. Jesus is getting into some really heated discussions with the Pharisees about truth, about himself, and about who God is. And they believe he's speaking heresy. So in verse 48 it says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So isn't Jesus picking a Samaritan for this story making more and more sense? So the lawyer asked Jesus, oh sorry. So the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replies with a parable. A man, and now we know really nothing about this man other than he was traveling alone. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What we do know about this route is even today, this is known to be very dangerous. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. So it's roughly this 4,000-foot drop in about 17 miles. So it's a pretty dramatic drop. It's a great place for robbers to hide out because it's, it's pretty windy. There are rocks and caves and lots of places to hide. And these are not just pickpockets. They don't just want to steal your watch or your Air Jordan sandals. (laughs) They want to take everything that you have, and they want to take it with great force. Then it says, still in verse 30, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him, so now he's naked, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Imagine him. He's naked, bruised, bloody, and he most likely would not be able to move or talk, maybe even passed out or on the verge of passing out. Verse 31, now by chance a priest, so someone who knew the law well, considered a holy man, was walking down that road, and when he saw him, and this word saw is the Greek word "horajo," which means to see, discern, Perceive. So he was close enough he could examine the situation. And then it says he passed by on the other side. Verse 32 so likewise, the Levite, who was a little bit lower than the priest, they were like assistants or aides to the priest, he too was considered a holy man. Verse 32, when he, the Levite, came to the place and saw, same word for saw as the priest, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. So we know that there's two holy men who saw and assessed what happened to this man. They saw he was naked, he was wounded, he was alone, and he would probably die. Many have speculated about the reasons why they did that. But the truth is it really doesn't matter. Jesus is trying to make a point. They saw him and they chose to leave him. Two holy men who knew the law, who regularly held people accountable to that law, didn't do what the law required of them. Remember the lawyer quoted from Leviticus 19:18 about the about loving your neighbor as yourself? But only a few verses later in Leviticus 19, to 34, God commands this. You must treat the foreigner living among you as native born and love him as yourself. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this Hebrew word for foreigner, hager, also means stranger, sojourner, or someone who either has no family or who has nobody in their family that would act with love on their behalf. So here a neighbor is somebody who's a different race from you, ethnicity, and maybe even worships a different God. And God establishes this in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? It's not a new concept. And they all conveniently forgot about it. But back to our story. Two holy men, no one stopped to help. And I'll tell you, I struggled. I I was very convicted with the fact that I would not have stopped either. Out of fear, mostly, or some distrust, is he faking it? Will this be my fate as well if I stop to help him? If I saw someone who was naked, bloody, beat up on the side of a road in a really sketchy neighborhood, I would not stop either. I'd call the police and I'd tell them exactly where the man is, but I would not stop. And I think that's the point here. Jesus created this scenario that forces us to check our hearts. He created this situation where we must struggle with an ethical and moral dilemma. Jesus never chastises the priest or the Levite. He merely states the facts. He lets us wrestle with the implications of their actions. So now we're on verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, and this is the same word saw as the Levite and the priest. He saw, discerned, he examined the situation, and then it says what? He had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him, came close to him, and bound up his wounds. With what? He didn't have a first aid kit, band-aids, or gauze on him. He would have had to tear his own garments to make this work. Then it says, pouring on oil and wine. Oil was used as a healing balm, as a sealant or barrier that would help the wound heal, along with wine that we know today, we have studies that say that wine acts as an antiseptic. So these are two valuable things that he owns and is using on this injured stranger. Already we see the great cost of him stopping to help. Continuing in verse 34, then he set him on his own animal. He would have picked, he would have had to pick him up. Remember, he's naked, bloody, half dead, and who wants to touch a stranger in that state? And he probably would have needed to throw him over the animal, probably a donkey or a mule. And it says, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Think of all that goes into caring for someone in that state giving him food, water, comfort, cleansing. Imagine what a good nurse or a loving parent would do. Verse 35, and the next day, the next day, that means he stayed with him all night, caring for him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which, which, we, which we know now is a two-day wage. It's believed that it could pay for about one to two months stay at an inn. So clearly he's very generous. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And this word for take care means to attend to. So basically asking the innkeeper to continue the care he himself was giving to the injured traveler. And then it says, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This shows he wasn't done. He planned to return to him. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved... To be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So here are three things this parable reveals. Number one, reveals the condition of our heart, reveals our true need, and number three, reveals Christ's mission. Number one, reveals the condition of our heart. The condition of our heart exposes what we really think and how we relate to others. It shows biases, our judgments, our prejudices. How we relate to others directly impacts how we see and relate to God. I'm a licensed professional counselor, so I look at a lot of things through the lens of a therapist. So when I hear us make excuses, myself included, for any of these characters, right away I see it as a red flag for rationalizing. Rationalization is a defense mechanism. It's the action of attempting to explain or justify behavior of an attitude that is unacceptable or inappropriate, but we use logical reasons for it. Usually, this is motivated by feelings of guilt to maintain self-respect and protect ourselves from criticism. But remember, these are made-up stories. The characters aren't real. We can't know their thoughts or feelings because they just don't have any. Are we guilty of rationalizing behaviors for these characters in every parable that we've read? I'm guilty. This can be very convicting, especially when it's to characters we'd rather not relate to. But guess what? The original hearers or audience did the same thing. We're human all I can say is I encourage you to not walk away as the rich young ruler, elder, the eldest son, or as this lawyer did. Press in, be self-aware, lean into your, what your heart is exposing, then take it humbly to Jesus, knowing he already knows. And what if this parable, in all parables, if we look at it as a story that Jesus used to expose the condition of our heart? as a judgment that convicts our heart to reveal the truth, the truth that we all need a savior. And this is our second point, that this parable reveals our need for a savior. Unfortunately for the lawyer, he was too proud to see this. At the end of the story, at the end of this interaction, Jesus says, go and do the same. Would he, could he? No, had he only allowed this story to convict his heart, and said, well, Jesus, this is a radical story, this is crazy, this is an impossible standard, I cannot do this, Jesus would have had an entirely different conversation with him. Jesus was showing how neither he or anyone else could meet the perfect requirements of the law. Even those who dedicate themselves to it fall short. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the law to its deepest intent. You know, it's easy for us to look at this story and think, The Samaritan is the hero. I need to be the Samaritan. I need to be more like the Samaritan. But let's not get this twisted. Jesus is the hero. No one could have done this. No Samaritan could have done this either, no matter how good they were. Remember, made up story. He doesn't exist. I'm not supposed to read this story and think, I need to do better, be better. But that's the point of the story. We aren't the good Samaritan. We can't be. But isn't that a relief? Friends, we are the injured traveler. We need a savior. The Samaritan in the story wasn't some benevolent person doing a random good deed. He literally saved his life. Jesus is the good Samaritan. This story is about salvation. This isn't a story about doing more because Jesus said "It's, it's already been done, it is done. Unless we've been humbled by the knowledge that we are incapable of being the hero in this story, realizing that he paid everything and has come to freely give us salvation, only then, through him, could we ever love like this. When we see our need for a savior and holy surrender, we belong to him. God sees us as perfect in Christ Jesus. Once we are true believers, he lives in us. And now we can be people whose behavior and heart reflects that of Jesus. Now we can be part of number three. This parable, as in all parables, reveals Christ's mission, which is to seek and save the lost. If Jesus is seeking the lost, so should we. Now through Christ, we can demonstrate love, like the Samaritan in this story, not from a place of works or earning our place in heaven, but from a place of gratitude. And the fruit of that gratitude is loving our neighbor. We are called to love because we have experienced that extravagant love. This story displays that extravagant love. And out of the gratitude of our heart, here are four ways to pass on love and be a true Christ-like neighbor. Number one, a true neighbor sees. Remember the Greek word in the parable horaho? First, we must see, assess, discern our neighbor's need. To do this means we don't let race, religion, or personal inconvenience limit how we demonstrate our love. Is there someone you can try to intentionally see more of? Someone you know to some capacity, but never really stop to assess how they are doing? Someone from a different race, socioeconomic background, political affiliation, and faith. Number two, a true neighbor shows compassion. Compassion is the willingness to relieve the suffering of another. Compassion demonstrates how we love. It's love in action. How we love others shows how we love God. Dorothy Day was a journalist and an activist who worked for social causes such as pacifism and women's suffrage and was quoted as saying, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Who do you love the least? And how can you move more towards them in compassion? Number three, a true neighbor sacrifices. She is willing to sacrifice her time, her plans, her resources, possessions, her finances for someone in need. Not exhaustively, be wise and have healthy boundaries, but there is a cost. And this this is fruit of our transformation in Christ. When was the last time you sacrificed, you really sacrificed something to help someone else in need? And number four, a true neighbor returns. Just like the Samaritan said he'd be back to the innkeeper in verse 35, a true neighbor visits again and keeps in touch. We are looking to be like Christ, that's a bigger commitment. Coming back means she's willing to build a connection or a relationship when applicable and appropriate. When it Who is someone you know is in some kind of need right now that you can reach out to, call, text, or visit with? You know, studying this parable really blessed my heart and truly reminded me of who my savior is and who I am in relation to him. I hope you feel the same. See, he is our savior. We were once that injured traveler. We were lying in a ditch on the side of the road bruised, bleeding, hopeless. No one could save us, and no one even wanted to try. And then here comes Jesus. He cleans us up, he cares over us, and he doesn't leave us. Where is Jesus in your life right now? Is he the savior of your life, or have you been going at it alone, on your own? trying to be the Good Samaritan without him maybe, thinking, I can't do this anymore. I've tried. It is too hard. Would you surrender or resurrender your life to him right now? Is he the savior of your life? Give him your life and he will walk with you through all the pain, all the joy, and everything in between. Jesus' love changes us. His love saves us. His great grand, extravagant, amazing love. This story is about salvation. And in the words of Tim Keller, let the glory of what he's done dawn on you all over again, and then you can't help but be merciful as he is merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that we need you. Thank you for being our savior, who shows extravagant love to us. May we have hearts that surrender to you. Help us to never forget that we need a Savior. Thank you for your word and for just loving us as you do. Give us ears to hear what you are calling us to do through you. In Jesus' name, amen.